And that's really what self-compassion is at the end of the day. It's not saying I'm perfect. I'm great. You know, I've got it all figured out. I'm confident. I'm happy. It's okay. You're imperfect like everyone else. That's okay. You know, strive to be better. Strive to learn. There's room for learning there. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? Mm, wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're do all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Hi. Hi. Uh, Happy Friday. Happy Friday. I'm very happy that it's Friday. This felt like a long week. It has been a bit of a heavy lift this week. What's that? I said all these weeks feel long. Monday and Tuesday take forever and then it's Friday and that's nice. Yeah, it's like the longest, shortest time. I don't know. It's it's very bizarre. Nobody whole... understands the concept of time right now. Nope. Um, yes, it's all very disorienting. Um, but our conversation, I think, served as a wonderful like redirection. She was. We did some reframing. I think in that. you're talking about Megan. Talking about Megan, yeah. conversation with Megan. Megan Bruno. Um, who I want to be my new therapist. I know. We decided, yeah. like, how do you reconcile if you want somebody to be both your therapist and your friend? Like, can you have both? I just think I want to, I want her to just be my friend and I will take her out for drinks. And get some free advice. Get some feedback and then that will be my payment. I agree. And I feel like she'd be down for that. So we're going to ask her. But um, no, it was a cool conversation. She, she was, we talk a lot about discomfort and sitting in discomfort and what that means. Um, and I think right now is a time of incredible discomfort for us as individuals and as a culture and as a country. And we're trying to just kind of navigate it the best way we can, which is just having conversations and getting informed. One interesting thing we talked about, which is is just rampant right now, I think, is like this idea of that she defined as spiritual spiritual bypassing. Yeah, which you will learn all about. And I thought it was just so like it. I don't know. It just summed up this moment right now in 2020, where everyone is just kind of like it's like extreme elevating to deal with like the stress, but you're not really dealing with the stress. You're just sort of like. I don't know. It's a very, it's a very weird concept, but or, I mean, it's a very true concept. Yeah, um, and uh, it just it rang very true for me. Yeah, I think we all spend a lot of times a lot of time distracting ourselves and becoming busy in order to avoid things, even if you're not actually busy, and even if the things that you're avoiding will not be solved by avoiding them. But um, like, even the things that you're doing to avoid them, like, are seeming like. You know, if you go on a whatever, like the example is like a meditation retreat and then it's like, whatever. Anyway, she'll get into it. It's hard to explain. (laughs) My brain's not working right now. Too many cliff notes. Um, Have a listen. Enjoy Megan Brunel. And yeah. Welcome, Megan Brunel. It is so nice to meet you and chat with you and dive into all of this stuff that's not so fun, but kind of necessary. 
Yes, super relevant right now. And it's nice to meet you too. And I'm just so glad to be here and so glad that you guys are, are facilitating this conversation. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, can you, I guess, let's start with some just background and context and tell us a little bit about the work that you do. And so then it makes sense why we're firing all these questions at you. Sure, absolutely. So I'm a therapist, mental health therapist and executive coach and you know, speak and write and do all those sorts of things in the mental health arena. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's probably self-explanatory as to why that's relevant right now, but I tend to specialize in perfectionism. Um, I started out with my own journey with eating disorders and depression and anxiety, um, became, came to understand that as really like a manifestation of my own perfectionism, my own inability to sit with uncomfortable feelings, being super hard on myself, having this like critical inner voice, um, unrealistically high inflexible expectations and my self-worth that was really dependent on like outcomes and achievements and appearance. So through my own, um, you know, kind of cliche, like white yoga girl, spiritual awakening, heartbreak kind of situation about a decade ago, um, when I was ironically finishing my master's in psychology, um, I uh, came to sort of understand that I'd really been trying to relate to life in a way where I orchestrated my life to avoid discomfort. I didn't actually learn how to cope with it. And so over the next, you know, my work until this period, and, and it continues to be my work because it's really a practice, not something that we just like learn one day and then uh, ultimately you know, know exactly what we're doing is just learning how to be with discomfort, how to change our relationship to ourselves, how to become that much more like internally and externally resourced. So instead of um, trying to be perfectionistic and not feel pain, we become more resilient to it and more resourced in the face of it. So that's timely for these days because I think most of us, um, you know, even those of us who are really, really, really good at um, being in control and creating a sense of like certainty and comfort uh, have really been thrown out of our comfort zones through this situation. So uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I can obviously share more, but that's yeah, that. no, amen. I think, I think that the two things that you've touched on that are probably the most salient right now are the notion, I mean, discomfort in general as the umbrella experience, but certainly the notion of both, you know, perfectionism, but even more like outcomes, focusing on outcomes and focusing on, you know, it all kind of ties into this, like what can you control? And the more you focus on an outcome, the more you feel out of control when you're approaching what is not ultimately meant to be that way. And that whole notion of certainty, I think is like, that's been such a huge lesson, I think for me, for so many people throughout this these last few months of global health crisis, of civil unrest and protests and anger. And, and just, it's incredible like how all of these themes, I mean, Zoe actually was talking about some, an interesting parallel. I'll let you share, Z. Well, uh, which parallels? Oh, just about the um, pandemic the- one and pandemic two. Yeah. Just referring to COVID and Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Um, no, I, I, yeah, I just thought it was interesting that the the way that COVID is manifesting is through respiratory uh, issues, and that is how people are dying because they literally can no longer breathe. And it's right on the heels of now we have Black Lives Matter, and you know this is not the first time someone has said I can't breathe, and it is just this like it's almost spooky because they're they're kind of existing for each other in a weird way. It's like, you know, if um, I was thinking like if we didn't have this pandemic right now with COVID and we didn't have the economic crisis and the highest levels of unemployment rates ever, that wouldn't allow people to go out into the streets 
the way, you know, the numbers that we've seen to protest, like it just, it's kind of like they're shaking hands in all these like weird ways. Yeah. It was just kind of an eerie, eerie thought. Yeah. I I think, I, I mean, I definitely hear some, I agree with some of the parallels there and I don't know if you intended it this way or not, Zoe, but like, I would just be mindful about calling it like pandemic one and pandemic two as though Black Lives Matter is a pandemic when it's actually racism that's the pandemic, you know? Like, I think Black Lives Matter is yeah, no, for sure. anti-racist, like social justice. And just a clarification, I think, for like anyone who might be listening and hear that is it being perceived as a negative thing. But obviously, I want to open that up for you to, to clarify. Yeah, yeah for sure. Someone um, someone was referring to it. Someone actually that we interviewed yesterday was referring to it as those two things. I, I think just to say that these are two main, very large crises crisis that we're dealing with right now i think that was totally. all that was trying to be communicated but we'll always take clarification but yeah, yeah. It, like the entire globe is literally like suffocating <laughs> it's like totally. yeah there's so much pain right now and and you're so right that i think um not only were people already feeling like just this sense of like powerlessness and trauma and fear and and anger and like feeling like there's this injustice and feeling disenfranchised and at the same time, like disoriented and confused. I mean, just like all of the shit. And then, you know, when everything with, with George Floyd happened, I mean, that was just so, it's so exposed, uh, you know, the insidious, like systemic racism or white supremacy in our society. And I think you're right that as a result of some people, you know, not having to be going into their jobs every day or, um, you know, having, that much more like pain as a motivator it, it facilitated them being able to get out and uh, a protest and, and speak and be heard the unfortunate side of that may be that we might see spikes I think in um in the COVID as a result we are seeing some spikes already back from even like Memorial Day so who knows what that's a result of but we do have to still be mindful of these large gatherings but at the same time I mean there's there maybe is a, a silver lining in this and it's like we're really taking action around something that has continued to be silenced again and again and again. Well, I was saying actually like another potential silver lining of everybody coming together and having the ability to come together and the numbers that we have is that, you know, instead of perhaps spending the next, uh, I don't know, five months until we hit fall, winter, having a total anxiety attack about the next spike that's going to occur. I think that again, this protest has just accelerated the inevitable and has kind of, you know, uh, pulled the rug out from, uh, you know, under like any potential news media, just like going at it for the entire summer and fall and just creating this whole new cycle of fear around like, well, the word, you know, we're going to have this whole other wave and it's going to be worse than the last time. So now we have this, this sort of precedence, right? Because everybody came together already on a global scale in mass, you know, numbers. So it's very interesting how these two two events are kind of dancing together. Totally. And I think it really exposes like, you know, first it's interesting, like I, I, the majority of my clients are white and that speaks to, of course, privilege. I mean, you know, I do see some clients pro bono and on like very reduced rates for some, um, but the majority of my clients do pay like a, you know, my, my rate and that's not accessible for most underprivileged populations. And so as a result, I've been having a lot of this social justice oriented conversations with clients and have to recognize like, yes, I mean, me being white, them being white, there are certainly blind spots. Um, But it's interesting hearing some of them say like, look, like I I want to protest, but also like, I don't really feel it's safe. I don't necessarily want to expose myself to 
coronavirus. I'm worried about, you know, people pointing guns at me because that's obviously happening a lot at some of these protests. Um, and they see for them, they're like, it, it's, it's not worth the risk. And I think it's so indicative of how much oppression and suffering some of these populations have been through that for them, they're like, you know what, it's fucking worth the risk. Like, I'm going to put myself out there. And even though I might expose myself to the virus, even though I might get like attacked by a police officer or by a bystander who's like a vigilante trying to shoot me with their AK-47 or whatever, um, I'm going to take that risk because this, I have been oppressed for so long and this cause is like worth me risking all of these things. And I think that's like, you know, like you're saying, Zoe, I mean, it really is like, it's, it's challenging because it's like, you know, we're, we're at risk either way. And for oppressed populations, they believe they're more at risk by saying nothing than they are at saying something and even exposing themselves to all of these dangers. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And I think it ties back to, you know, what we've identified as being part of the problem here in the first place when we're speaking about, you know, the issues around racism is, is you know, silence and not, you know, not contributing because you're concerned that maybe you say the wrong thing is effectively now what we've learned is really, I mean, it's not, it's not in the same category of bad. And I'm putting that in quotes as, you know, taking action that is deliberately destructive, but it's certainly the level of complicity is obviously proving to be, you know, a a different type of danger. So that's what, you know, I think that's what we're hoping to try to, to try to get past with some of these conversations. But I think you know, going back to what you originally started to say, I think all of this really does tie into the work that you do around sitting in discomfort, right? Like that is the moment that we're living in is everything is totally fucking uncomfortable and we have to find ways to actually cope with that. So, I mean, what are you like, give us, what are some tools? Like what can we, what can we share that is helpful? For sure. Well, well, look, I think before we go into tools, it can be helpful for listeners to understand, for all of us to just like clarify and understand why are things so uncomfortable right now? I mean, I think it's, there are like the obvious reasons and then there are some reasons that maybe people haven't thought of and it can really help to validate those experiences and actually just understand why we're so uncomfortable. A lot of people, you know, I find are coming to me and they're like, I don't get it. Like I'm either like, I'm still employed or I'm not alone. And yet I still have this like intense anxiety and I'm unable to sleep and I'm unable to eat or I'm, you know, binging every day or whatever. Um, or I'm drinking every day, or I don't know what's going on. It doesn't really make sense. I don't deserve to be feeling this way, or I shouldn't be feeling this way when so many other people are suffering. And so let's just recap like the last few months. I mean, we, again, yes, global pandemic that really seems like it came out of nowhere. I know it didn't. And in retrospect, it's like, there were a lot of signs and, you know, we've, we certainly heard that there have been some failures of leadership or, or seen that there have been some failures of leadership. Um, and at the same time, I mean, it was, this was not a huge conversation we were having in January, February. All of a sudden, March hit, and it was like, whoa, like, borders being closed, like, everything's stopping, like, businesses are being shut down. You're not allowed to essentially, like, go anywhere, leave your house, see anybody else. You know, when we think about mental health, the things that we need for mental health are connection, for sure. Absolutely, we need connection. We need stability or, like, a routine, some sort of predictability and certainty around our environment. We need a source of meaning. We need to trust that we can like have our survival needs met. Um, And, you know, the list goes on. But basically, even just those four things I mentioned, we went overnight from some of us at least, or most of us feeling like some sense of stability to being extremely disconnected and isolated, which breeds depression and shame, or I should say shame and then depression. We went from having some sort of like predictability in our lives to being like, nope, there's, there's absolutely no certainty here. Things are being shut down and we don't know when this is going to end. So not being able to predict or control. We, people went from having like an income or savings or whatever 
to having that gone, wiped, or, you know, I know the, the market's been doing better, but for a lot of people, they lost a ton of money initially in the market if they were invested in that. And as far as like employment, I mean, that is a huge source of people's mental health and their source of meaning. So the massive number of people who were laid off, just this like existential crisis, not to mention the fear around like income, the connection you get at work, all of that kind of stuff. But like, oh my gosh, like, who am I? What do I do with my day? People who built businesses spent years and years building businesses. Um, I don't know if either of you two were, were personally affected in this way, but like, so, I mean, pretty much every single business was, right? So people who'd spent years and years building businesses, all of a sudden having those like completely wiped, shut down, obliterated overnight. And, you know, so over time, of course, like, especially with the disconnection, this being so wearing, people's mental health has like really been impacted. Another piece that, um, well, one other thing I'll mention quickly is all of these events, all of these things that we had to look forward to, travels that people were looking forward to, weddings. Um, I know like, you know, we, my, my um, boyfriend's niece's bat mitzvah was canceled like right away. And, you know, all of these things that people have been spent so much time looking forward to and planning, or even if people had like book launches and, you know, openings and stuff, all of that again canceled. So there's grief in that. And then what I don't think people are talking about enough is the fact that so many of us, I'm one of these people who depend on um, our coping and self-care for our mental health. Uh, you know, for me, it's like going to 305 and going to my yoga and my acupuncturist and my massage therapist and playing soccer every Friday night. Like I'm super privileged and that I can afford to manage my mental health quite holistically. But I do that through all of these various different structures I put in place that help me feel connected and help my body feel good and help me have fun and all of that. That all disappeared. Now, um, when that disappears, not only does that affect our mental health, but for so many of us, especially like the New Yorkers who are used to being really busy and going from like one thing to the next and social events and side hustles and, you know, all of the things that we do for like our fitness and fun with all of that gone, we had to turn inward and face a lot of the shit that we have been avoiding through that process. And so I know for me, it has been an intensive period of grief. I've had to face some stuff that like, you know, I know is there, but I tend to titrate and speak to my therapist about and go through in the yoga room, but I don't go through 24 seven. And this takes away, so has taken away so many of our structures. So we've got just been, all of the things that happened with COVID the grief that so many of us, the grief and trauma that so many of us are having to experience that's kind of bubbled up as a result of this. And then everything with George Floyd and, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and this like real centering on like racial injustice. I mean, that's not only incredibly re-traumatizing for any BIPOC individuals, but it, it is like an added stressor and again, collective trauma for certain individuals. And, you know, I mean, I say this knowing that white people, we do have a responsibility and I don't think it's something we should be shying away from, but it is an additional stressor, you know, in the midst of um, a lot of other stressors that we're dealing with. So there's a lot going on right now um, that I think it's really important for us to just like acknowledge before we even go into tools and be like, it's okay to be feeling this way. In fact, it would be weird if you weren't. And I think we're so much in this society that's like really focused on gratitude and positive thinking and finding the positive and all of that, which there's definitely um, utility to. But what can happen is it can be very invalidating at times, especially when we're in periods like this and our emotions are like so valid given the circumstances. So what, what tends to happen is like, you know, many of us right now are experiencing or have been experiencing heightened levels of like we'll say anxiety and depression like those are pretty common right now anxiety depression grief i mean the list goes on but those are some really prevalent emotions and 
you know, when we tell ourselves you should just be positive or you should be just grateful for what you have or other people have it worse, not only then are we feeling our grief, our anxiety, our depression, but then on top of that, now we start to feel shame, you know, for feeling that. We're like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I'm not coping well enough. I'm broken. I'm entitled. I'm, you know, weak, whatever. When in reality, it's okay to be feeling not okay right now. We've heard a lot of that, but it really is. It would almost be odd if you weren't experiencing. Yeah, some it is degree. a little bit. It is a little bit upsetting when you get the like pockets of people who are just like, "This has actually been an amazing time for me. I've been able to just turn inward and you know clean out my closet and yes. spend so much more time with my kids and we all cook together and I mean it's just it's kind of infuriating." I, I, you know, it's like on so many levels, but yes, it, it is certainly not validating anyone's feelings of totally. like total freak out. No. And yes. I think it also begs the question of, to your point earlier, Megan, like, what are you hiding from that you're still creating all of this busyness for yourself? And like, totally. what, what are you not dealing with that all the rest of us are dealing with? Because there's definitely like, to your point, again, this is a collective trauma. This is a collective grief. So, and I'm not knocking it. Like if baking fucking, you know, 20 loaves of sourdough is really like the best therapy for you, then do it. But I am inclined to call bullshit on some, maybe not all, but some of that busy work, because like we're saying, it feels like an avoidance tactic. That's Zoe. That's such a great point. And actually you brought up something I completely forgot to mention, which was all of the working parents right now whose kids have been out of school that they've had to full-time parent and full-time be at work and also, you know, maybe be a caregiver for an elderly parent right now. Well, they're also terrified of killing their elderly parent should they get COVID, you know, and also take care of the household because they no longer can outsource some of those duties. Women, of course, bearing the brunt of all of this. So that's you know, just the, also the added stress of this all I didn't even um, mention and the responsibilities. And yes, I think like those of us who are saying, this has been such a great time and, oh, I've just like really been able to take a break. And not only, yes, is that potentially a reflection of spiritual bypassing or avoiding, uh, you know, what, what might really be there, but it's often also a huge reflection of privilege and exactly what, you know, people are protesting over. I mean, it's people who are like, yes, I have tons of savings and I can afford to not work for a while. And yeah, I'll just take this time to just relax because they're not worrying about where their next rent payment is going to come from or how they're going to put food on the table or, you know, if they're going to get sick or whatever, because they're able, they don't have to go in and be an essential worker. So it really is um, so, so important as like, I'll share many tools and whatnot, but the first and most important tool in my opinion is to give yourself permission to like be in this shit right now, to feel uncomfortable. This is a chapter or a season. This is not indicative of the rest of our lives, hopefully. It's a normal response to abnormal circumstances. And, um, you know, I often talk about the evolutionary uh, utility of emotions, which a lot of people find quite helpful to see it through this lens. Again, especially in like the wellness industry, we're inundated with messages about positivity and we're told to choose happiness and we're told things like, you know, anger is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die and stuff like that. 
Um, when actually anger is a sign that a boundary has been crossed or an injustice has occurred or you've been mistreated or need to advocate for yourself or someone else. Without anger, we would not have like we women wouldn't be able to vote and, you know, LGBTQ people wouldn't be able to marry, like, like or get married. There are all of these social causes that would not have seen change and uh, justice and advocacy if it weren't for anger. And that's just one uncomfortable emotion that tends to get, uh, we say, I say pathologized, but like turned into a pathology in the wellness world. If we look at loneliness, which people always say, oh, you know, it's okay to be alone, but it's not okay to be lonely. Like we have all of these platitudes and I could go on about all of them. We should do a whole session on the platitudes that make me just like, Oh, I want to pull my hair out. (laughs) But like, you're like, Oh, it's okay to be alone, but not lonely. It's like, no, loneliness is an evolutionarily adaptive emotion that is there to tell us to connect. Because if we go back 200,000 years to our cave person days and we lived in groups, emotions were the pro-social signals that kept us together in groups so that we could survive and we could procreate. They made sure that we got enough to eat because we were able to all get in on the kill. They made sure that we stayed safe from predators. And, you know, they made sure that like anxiety, for example, that fight or flight response protected us from, you know, the tiger on the savannah. And they made sure that we stayed together and we stayed in the group so that we could procreate and be safe. So even things like rejection, shame, loneliness, guilt, all of these emotions are uncomfortable for a reason because they're telling us, hey, you've done something against your morals or something that might leave you ostracized from the group or you're disconnected in some way, like connect so that you can be a part and be safe. And oftentimes that's really profound for people to understand because they have been indoctrinated into this wellness bullshit that says, you know, you're supposed to be happy all the time. And once we give ourselves permission to feel our discomfort, we have access to mindfulness, which is another overused term that not of us, we don't always understand, but really what mindfulness is, is being able to just notice our present moment experience, our emotions, our thoughts, our sensory experience, whether we're like, you know, seeing something or hearing something or an experience in our body, to notice it in the present moment without judgment and with acceptance. And we cannot be with discomfort without mindfulness. So I always give that little, uh, little bit of psychoeducation around the evolutionary nature of our emotions so people can see, oh, actually, my emotions are there for a reason. They're there to tell me something. It doesn't mean I'm a failure. It doesn't mean I'm weak. It doesn't mean I necessarily have to go on antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication. Sometimes that's helpful, but it's not, it shouldn't always be the knee-jerk response. And so once we do that, once we can acknowledge that difficult emotion, then we can look at it and be like, okay, are you telling me the truth? You know, when I am about to give a talk or go on a podcast, like in this this instance right now, I'm always going to feel a little bit of anxiety. That means I care, you know, and anxiety is telling me like, you know, you could screw up, you could screw up, but it's not telling me my life is in danger. Now, our body interprets it in the same way as if, you know, I were going to be attacked by like a wild animal or something like that. So that's where it's important for us to look at that emotion and understand the circumstances and be able to tell whether or not we should actually listen to the anxiety. And I should be like, sorry, gals, I'm sick. I don't want to do the podcast anymore. Or whether I should kind of push through that discomfort and trust that it will eventually burn off. And to give you an alternate example, if I were walking home from the bar at night, assuming bars are open again one day, um, and I have the choice of going through like a dark alley and taking a shortcut home or taking a well-lit path, and I start to feel anxiety when I go down the dark alley, it makes sense that I listen to my anxiety. It's telling me this is dangerous and I should take a different street. 
So once we start to gain this kind of emotional intelligence that comes through the, our experience of mindfulness, then we're so much more in control of our response to our difficult emotions and to our discomfort. Those are all great points. And I feel like I, I, should, I need to listen to them on loop, like on a daily basis, <laughs> especially the two points about, well, let's just go with anger, <laughs> giving yourself permission to feel that. And yes, to your point, I'm like, oh, we all need to remind ourselves that we've gone way down, way too far down the wellness rabbit hole and calling it quote unquote wellness. We all kind of need to just pull up for a minute and like reevaluate what we're telling each other to do. Um, Cause it's really not that, it's not that great, at least for our mental state. Yeah. It's like, we're not going to be all cross-legged every day with chanting our mantras and just be totally Zen and present and in the moment and full of gratitude and love and joy. It's just like, no, there's some shit going on in the world and I feel angry and sad. Exactly. And there's no action that can come out of that, which I think is such a valid point. Yes, exactly. And I think, I mean, the feminist in me says that through this like, oh, just be kumbaya and love and light, which is like another one that I'm just like, oh, you know, love and light. It's like, that's a way that we continue to silence women and keep us quiet so we don't speak up and keep us demure and acquiescing and placating and, oh no, we're too bitchy if we express any form of need. But, you know, it is through being able to express the injustice that so many oppressed populations, I mean, obviously, you know, du jour is, is Black people right now, but, you know, women as well, um, you know, LGBTQ people, um, people who are not of able body, like, I mean, there's obviously a huge list of, and many layers of oppression when it comes to this, but, you know, it is so important for us to listen to our anger and to back, coming back to mindfulness, remember the emotion itself is neither good nor bad. I mean, it's, it's probably there for a reason. And our work is to look at it and see if it's telling us something worth responding to, but it's the violence and the aggression it usually is the unhelpful response to anger. Now, sometimes there is a place for violence and aggression. So, uh, you know, you think of somebody in an abusive relationship, sometimes they need to fight back, right? Or they need to speak up. There, sometimes there needs to be aggression to set a boundary. So, uh, you know, I certainly won't offer an opinion on whether or not some of the aggression that we're seeing right now in response to the oppression that Black people have experienced for hundreds of years is... is uh, serving. I mean, I think it's warranted, but I I don't know if it it will ultimately be serving, but you could say that, yeah, it's their only choice when a population or a person has been trapped in a situation and oppressed indefinitely. They basically have two choices. They can either accept it and it's like a learned helplessness kind of way where they continue to be abused or they can fight back because if they're not being heard through assertiveness, then aggressiveness is kind of the only way to go. So, um, so yes, I think like, anger, loneliness, sadness, anxiety, disappointment, heartbreak. Like there's just so many things that we're experiencing right now. And it's really important to honor that and, and be like, I see you and I hear what you're feeling like to ourselves. Like say that to ourselves, you know, it makes sense. You're feeling this way. I have a friend who, who I will obviously not name, but who, who always kind of has this way about her that is like, we could be talking about any subject or maybe a person who is upsetting or a subject that's upsetting or whatever. And, and I will have a very strong reaction to it. And I find that her reaction to just about anything or anyone who I may find off-putting or offensive or whatever it is, she has this ability to like, just like, you know, be unaffected and let it roll off and just like, just sort of choose love kind of thing. Like, <laughs> why am I going to, you know, and I always, I, I find this so frustrating and she's, it's not the only person I see this quality in, but I, 
to me, I, I, you know, she, it's sort of this like accepting behavior from others that I, I think is inappropriate or unacceptable. And she almost presents it in a way that is almost like the moral high ground. And like, yeah. I'm just sort of more evolved and like, oh, look at you still stuck in your anger and your oh. anger, you silly girl. It's and I'm like zenner than thou kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm just <laughs> so like so insulting. loving and accepting and non-judgmental of everyone. <laughs> That I yes. live in this bubble, and I don't don't know how to. I don't know how to interpret that. I mean, I do have my own interpretation of that, which I think is total bullshit. And um, <laughs> I see this someone who's just—it's an excuse because they don't have sort of like the backbone to stand up for themselves or to say, or you know, like maybe they just can't take confrontation. But you know, what is I don't know. Like, what is your take on that? And like, where where is the line there? Like, when is someone being too sort of accepting of like? the state of things or the, the way people are, you know, they're being treated and like, I don't know. It's very vague and broad. I understand, but no, I think it's, I mean, look, like there are so many different ways I can respond to this and I'll, I'll offer um, my thoughts. And I think, yes, it's a, it's rampant. I mean, are you too familiar with the terms and I can define them anyway, because I don't imagine all listeners are, but spiritual materialism and spiritual bypassing of either of you no, I heard you say spiritual bypassing earlier and I was like, yep, okay. there's that word. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so I, I, it might be helpful to frame it through, through, through this perspective. And I think that whole like love and light and love is the, the highest kind of form of, of spirituality and forgiveness. Yes, exactly. And forgiveness and stuff that can be incredibly invalidating and damaging, especially to those of us who are survivors of experiences. And, you know, from like on an individual level, if that were my client, then it wouldn't necessarily be up to me to say you're doing it wrong. I mean, if that person's experience truly is that they're happy and they are pleased with their situation and it feels good, it's not really my place to say like, you know, you're not doing your, you're not being socially responsible by not advocating. Um, because the client would be my, or sorry, the individual would be my client. But on more of a like social justice level, I think these two things, spiritual materialism and spiritual bypassing are rampant in the wellness industry. And I'll explain what they are. So spiritual materialism is uh, this sort of like ironic process where people use spirituality to feed their ego. So you see it a lot in the wellness industry in New York, in LA, where it's like, oh, wait, how many meditation retreats have you done? I've done this many. Or, mm, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I just I just transcended in that meditation. Or, oh, I haven't had gluten for four, four years. Um, or like, you know, oh, I just like, no, just choose, again, these sort of choose love, choose love, that kind of thing. And it's actually like, it's so ironic because if you think of spirituality, I mean, at least one interpretation of it is that we want to, I think it's unrealistic to completely eradicate our ego, but we want to understand it. We want to understand where we're seeking validation. We want to understand where we're driven by, you know, a need to feel like we're more important than others. And we want to try to to get rid of that, or at least like notice how it's causing ourselves and others harm and suffering. But spiritual materialism is this ironic process where we actually use spirituality to feel like we're better than other people. And so you see that a lot in our worlds. And so that may be a little bit of what's going on with your friend who's like, no, no, I'm just going to say love and choose love. And they feel better about themselves. They feel like they're doing the right thing. And like you said, this moral high ground. Now, spiritual bypassing, which is like a closely related concept, but quite different, is this idea of using Spiritual, spiritual or wellness uh, practices to avoid feeling. 
So normally when we think about numbing and avoiding our difficult emotional experiences, we think of like drinking or having sex or going on our phones or, um, you know, drugs or workaholism or all these sorts of things, which are pretty common as well. And we all have our different ways that we numb and we avoid. Um, and spiritual bypassing it are, can often be, it, it can be, it can manifest as like, oh my gosh, like that person is just so dedicated to their yoga practice or, oh, they're like, wow, it's incredible. Like, you know, they just like follow this, this completely clean diet or they, they meditate. Like whenever, whenever they're feeling down, they just do their TM and focus on their mantra for two hours and then it just burns off. But they're never actually turning inward and doing the work to process what they're going through or have gone through. And again, I want to be careful. I know it's I know my judgment is definitely coming through and showing, but I do want to remind people that like, this is a human thing. We all do this. I do this in many ways. I'm sure both of you do. We, we all numb and avoid. It's just human nature to seek pleasure and avoid pain. Ultimately, we want to become aware of where we're doing that and where it's causing us suffering. But again, we almost have normalized this, this uh, process of spiritual bypassing in the wellness world because it's glorified in so many ways. And the whole like love and light, choose love is just another way of being like, no, I don't feel any anger. It's just all love. And the interesting thing that I'll add and then pass it back over to you too is love or compassion as I think we want to frame it more in the world of spirituality is, um, yes, it, ha- it has a yin and it has a yang. So the yin being the feminine, the yang being the masculine. The yin is very much about like patience and tolerance and that forgiveness that you described and love and warmth and empathy and sympathy all of those things absolutely are part of compassion, but there's a yang of compassion. And the yang is expectations, boundaries, respect, autonomy, accountability, all of those sorts of things that growth, a desire for growth and being better, discipline, all of those things we often forget when we look at like love or compassion and think, I'm just going to be like loving to this person. So that means I have no boundaries whatsoever. No, I mean, love and compassion is the same way. You know, I think, I, Cameron, do you two have kids? You mentioned how many kids are? I have two. Yeah. yeah so, so you have two kids. So I'm sure with your kids, you want them to be moral beings who like, you know, ha- there's boundaries for them and you want them to like respect themselves and others. And you want them to want to grow and learn and be better and learn from their mistakes and own up to them and go to bed when you ask them to go to bed and not necessarily eat ice cream for dinner, maybe sometimes, but you know, there, there are rules, right? And so it's the same way that we would raise kids or pets or ex- what we'd expect from friends and loved ones. We have to still have this yang side in our compassion. And that often gets lost in this rhetoric of like love and light. And again, it's a reflection of privilege usually because those of us who can just choose love oftentimes aren't directly affected by the suffering. So again, tangent from Megan, pass it back over to you too. <laughs> no, not a tangent at all. It's so, so meaningful. And I feel like it all kind of falls under that header of what we were talking about earlier in, you know, in our typical kind of New York culture, it's a badge of honor when you work a 60, 70, 80 hour week compared to the sort of the, com- the commoners that work 40 hours. It's a badge of honor to never be off of your phone. It's a badge of honor and this is, I mean, I'm speaking broadly, but I think we've all experienced many, many people like this where the harder you work and the busier you are, it must make you a better and more deserving person. And it's exactly the same as what you're saying in, in wellness, which is, you know, however many hours you dedicate to like your journaling and your self-care, which by the way, are all good things and we all participate in them. And there is very powerful, positive things to come out of that, but you can't 
lose yourself in it and use that as your own badge of, again, it goes back to this like weller than thou thing, which I mean, we both like, we started this podcast in a direct response to like, can we get over this shit about how like wellness is all just like up here. And if you're not, you know, if your mantra is off, then your life is wrong. <laughs> over that shit. I mean, we have to be more real about it and use these tools as tools, but not as our entire uh, sense of self. Totally. And I mean, I specialize in perfectionism, which again, you know, we teach what we know and most therapists go into this because we want to figure ourselves out or heal ourselves. And we can bring perfectionism to that process of wellness where it's like, no, I have to be, it's all around like rigidity and being regimented and we're hard on ourselves if we don't do it perfectly. And, you know, we're always like, I need to do more and be better. And again, that's just a way of serving ego or externally validating ourselves where our self-worth becomes dependent on how long it's been since we've had sugar or, you know, how long we've meditated or which like spiritual books we've read lately or how many like retreats we've done in Bali, which again, like, I know I keep mentioning this, but it's so important to recognize like privilege is such a part of this. Like the single mom, I mean, I I have clients, you know, I'm so grateful that I have you know, some clients, of course, who are, are, you know, deeply oppressed and, you know, there are single moms working two jobs. I have a client who just recently picked up a, a, you know, an extra job on the side working for 10 bucks an hour doing like food deliveries, you know, while she has a a 10 year old kid that she's trying to homeschool and she doesn't have time to go to yoga or take time and even do like a Peloton at home or, you know, go get all her like healthy groceries. She can't afford that either. And so it's, you know, we have to like be really honest with ourselves. I think again, especially as white people, we want to believe that we've done all this ourselves and we're like, so it's so good for us for doing all our self-care and stuff like that. And it's, it's wonderful that we have opportunity for that, but it's also such a reflection of like the unearned privilege that we all share. Yeah. It's upsetting. I don't even know what to say about it. It's such a, it's such a charge. I mean, this topic is so charged right now. And you know, it's what it's like again. Here I am right now. I am sitting in my own discomfort because, right? I'm a, like a privileged white woman, and it's like, how dare I even talk about right? Like, how, how dare I even talk about you know what you're starting to touch upon? I, I feel like I, I find myself getting into this sort of position a lot in these types of conversation where I'm like. Uh, I don't know. Am I allowed to talk about this? It's like, it doesn't matter what I say. I'm going to sound like a total asshole. Um, okay. So maybe I'll just not say anything, but then to not say anything is equally worse. I don't know. It's a very, it's just like tough topic to talk about. It's always been difficult. It is especially difficult now. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so layered. Totally. It's so layered. Out of that is the, is just what we've been talking about. Like at the very least, sitting with that and recognizing it and being mindful of it and naming it and then taking action based on that. Because if we've learned anything, it's that inaction is, you know, is more poisonous than any type of action that we can take. Totally. And I think like, you know, I think the the guilt or the discomfort that you feel, Zoe, I mean, look again, caveat being, you know, three white women here right now. I mean, we we probably, we, we don't have a lived experience. So I don't know what the playbook is, there is no script for this. We are kind of figuring it out as we go, but I think your guilt or discomfort that you feel upon acknowledging this is healthy. Like that is, is a sign that you're like, oh yeah, there is again, unearned privilege here. Like there is an injustice. You can recognize it and you can recognize that like 
you've maybe implicitly played a part in it or unconsciously played a part in it. So have I. So sorry, like we all have. We all are in have internalized white supremacy. And that's just a fact. I mean, it, it's because we're baked in the same system. It's in the same way that like in this patriarchal society that we're baked into, like, you know, women are also sexist. We also have male supremacy in us, you know, or man, toxic masculinity affects men and women. Like it's, you know, we want to not, I mean, yes, we want to take personal responsibility, but we want to understand it as like, it's the system that's fucked. So what can we do to change that? And coming back to sitting with that discomfort, because I know we don't have a lot of time left and I'll just like kind of offer a few really like straightforward tools. You know, as I said, first one is mindfulness, recognizing what that discomfort is and what it's telling you. And oftentimes it's telling the truth and other times it's not. And so we want to be able to sit with it long enough and not judge ourselves in that experience. So we can try to make an informed judgment call as to whether or not it's telling us the truth and how we act from there. Now, when it comes to everything around race, I say this with the caveat of, again, of like, I don't know the answer. I'm still on this journey myself, like, you know, learning and failing every day and trying to understand how I can be within my integrity and do as much like work as is realistic for me, given my capacity and the other shit that I continue to deal with, with my mental health and whatnot. But, you know, I think we do have to recognize that we're imperfect and there has to be room for that. And so much of perfectionism is having these unrealistic inflexibly high expectations and that can come into this process around like confronting our internal white supremacy and it can also come into every other aspect of our lives our relationships our jobs our bodies you know our performance and our work like all that sort of stuff um and so it's important for us to remember like you're an imperfect human being like everyone else and that's okay and that's really what self-compassion is at the end of the day it's not saying i'm perfect I'm great. You know, I've got it all figured out. I'm confident. I'm happy. It's okay. You're imperfect like everyone else. That's okay. You know, strive to be better. Strive to learn. There's room for learning there. You did not, this is your first time. I mean, well, maybe if reincarnation is a thing, it's not your first time on this earth, but it's your first time at least remembering this journey on this earth. And there's not a script for a lot of this stuff. And so I think we've got to leave some room for imperfection and strive to be better. Um, And then as far as other tools, uh, you know, we want to look for internal resources and our external resources, whether like, you know, I'd encourage listeners to even think back on like past challenges you've been through. What got you through that? If I was to ask you what it is about you that got you through those difficult times, whether it was like, you know, losing people in your life or breakups or, you know, job stress or periods where like you had financial insecurity or, you know, there were other crises that you went through. How did you get through that? What is it about you, you know, that made you that resilient? So coming back to what, what, what are my internal resources? Why am I picturing like a bottle of wine? Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, and also, I mean, look, like there's a place for that in coping. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I think we oftentimes, you know, numbing has a negative connotation and coping has a positive one. And sometimes coping is numbing and that's okay. You know, I think try to do it as intentionally as possible, but there's absolutely a place for numbing. And especially, you know, I mean, I, I took more Xanax over these last like two and a half months than I've taken in my life. And I, I knew that that's what I needed. And, you know, fortunately, I trust in my relationship to that drug, but but, you know, I didn't have a lot of my coping mechanisms. And in order for me to still function at work while I was like living with my boyfriend's family after thinking I was leaving for four days and like didn't have any other coping mechanisms or resources and I was going through all the shit that I hadn't confronted, like, yeah, I needed it and that's okay. And so I think like, don't judge yourself for your coping. Internal resources, external resources. Yes, sometimes it's wine. Are there some other ones there that are maybe more serving? wine can still be serving and uh and you know connection is so important so like when we go through trauma and 
really like we're wounded in relationship for the most part and we heal in relationship. And it's so important to try to have people in our lives. And sometimes that just means a therapist or a pet sometimes can be great, but ultimately like we, it is ideal to try to have like one or two or a few people who you feel really safe with emotionally. And you can just be your imperfect kind of like proverbially a naked, you know, sometimes actually naked self. And, uh, and that can help reduce shame, which again, just makes all this so much worse and help you feel like loved and safe. It also on a physiological level takes us out of that state of fight or flight and puts us into what we call like tend to befriend where we feel, you know, the oxytocin and we go into our parasympathetic nervous system versus our sympathetic one. Another piece when it comes to uh, overcoming trauma and everything that we're dealing with right now, boundaries. Boundaries is so, so huge. And experiences of trauma tend to take away our ability to set boundaries because it, it really is an experience of having our boundaries crossed, of having like the rug pulled out from underneath us, of um, you know feeling violated often in certain ways. And we can tend to forget that we actually are empowered to set boundaries and re- remove ourselves from situations or um, express our you know anger or disappointment or whatever, or say, I'm only going to work this many hours a week or say, you know, I actually not going to show up for like the zoom meeting on Friday night. Cause I need a bit of a breather or those sorts of things. If you want to look at it through the same lens of like fight or flight, uh, fight or flight is supposed to be adaptive, right? Like, again, it's a response to anxiety. It's a response to trauma that normally saves our lives. But what happens, especially when we're younger or if we're trapped in a situation that's traumatic, fight or flight isn't possible. It's not available to us. So we want to relearn that we can actually fight or flee in certain situations. And that actually comes in the form of boundaries, either leaving or being like, I'm not engaging in this anymore or expressing assertively our our discontent or setting an expectation or saying, Hey, like this isn't cool. And this is what I need right now. There's obviously lots more on boundaries that we're not going to have time for, but I encourage people to Google that one. And then finally, you know, meaning is super important with this kind of thing. It may not have come for you just yet. I, I know I have a lot of friends. I mean, Erica, I know a mutual friend of ours has just like, you know, been in a really difficult time with her business and everything. And so many people are struggling with their businesses right now. And they're like, But trusting in the fact that at some point, you're going to look back on this experience and be able to integrate it in some way. And then getting to that point can help us fully work through our trauma. So um, so yeah, so just to, to recap on all the things that people should be doing, relationship to self and emotions, make sure that you're being kind to yourself, that you're treating yourself like a friend or a loved one, and you're making space for all of the discomfort and listening to what the emotions are saying. Look at your internal resources, how you got through stuff in the past and you know what it is about you that's really resilient internally. External resources, you know, supports, um, you know, coping, uh, ways of like finding meaning in the situation and being able to integrate the narrative and uh, boundaries are super, super important. So again, I'll pass it over to you guys. I know we only have a couple minutes left. No, no, but it's all, it's all super helpful. I know there's so many other paths I want to go down in this conversation, but I think we're going to just have to have you come back because yeah, I, we'll don't do part want, two. <laughs> I don't want to do a disservice to some big themes that, you know, that we had, we had touched on or talked about touching on before. But, you know, I think this is all fair to say, like, we're having a waking up moment. Um, and in waking up comes that moment of realizing that you're in the shit. And to your point, like sitting in the shit until it kind of encourages you and inspires you to take action in whatever way that action is in some way it's moving things forward. So there's, there's more positive there than there is, um, even though it's scary. So I don't know. I really appreciate this. I'm obviously going to be calling you for an actual therapy session. <laughs> I know. I, I was just thinking, I'm like, oh, I haven't seen my therapist in like eight months. And I just 
decided to take a sort of indefinite break. But but what are you doing next week, Megan? Yeah. Well, where, uh, <laughs> well, where are you located? Um, uh, norm- normally, I'm in New York. And uh, the past couple months, I was in D.C. Again, thought I was going for four days and ended up being there for two and a half months with my boyfriend's parents. Um, Wearing and nothing but a butt mitzvah <laughs> gown, right? Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> and now I'm in Miami. We came down here. Um, he had like a business opportunity. So I was like, absolutely, let's go to Miami. And actually, the beaches just opened a couple days ago. So I'm like, ah. Oh, water for this empath and you know I went to Target and bought some shirts. I'm so glad you just said water for the empath because that's absolutely what I want to talk about next time because totally so much like all of us out there that are just like hyper feelers that are oh my gosh. so fucked. Yes, <laughs> that's me. That's me. So yes, yeah, so normally in New York, but I see clients remotely and actually have like a great uh, associate I just added to my practice who's got lots of spots for seeing people if anyone's interested and she's a, a very reasonable that's great. So options. where should we send people to find you? Um, probably, I mean, I'm like semi-active on Instagram. That is like my larger platform, I guess, but I'm sort of like the, the uh, sporadic micro-influencer. Um, but my Instagram is just Megan J. Bruno. Uh, we're at Megan J. Bruno, which is M-E-G-A-N. J-E-R-U-N-E-A-U. Um, you can go to my site to learn more about me. It's meganbruno.com, M-E-G-A-N-B-R-U-N-E-A-U.com. Um, and you can email me at megan at meganbruno.com if you want to reach out or just shoot me a DM. Yeah, and we'll include all of this in the notes too so people don't have to write while they're driving or walking. Yes, yes. <laughs> Amazing. Um, thank awesome. you so much, Megan. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. You're so welcome, girls. Thank you for having me. Thank you for like just doing this and caring about this and wanting to sit in your own discomfort and do this work. It's so important to have these conversations. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is amazing. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.